Hi, my name is Billy Mean, and I'm the senior high coordinator here at Highlands. Please turn to Matthew chapter 2. Uh, and as you're turning there, I uh, just wanted to kind of point out, if it appears that my hands are shaking real bad, it's just because it's really cold up here and no other reason. That's the only reason. So. Our passage today is a very, very exciting one, and it's a very important one, uh, because it is the culmination of a promise made to a man named Abram many, many years ago. Abram had an unfortunately ironic name, and that Abram means father of many. Abram was a very, very old man who had no children. But God made a promise to him. And he said, you will be the father of so many descendants, they will be as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the beach. But yet he had no children. And God made the point even further, and he changed his name to Abraham, which means father of many nations. So not only was he going to have many descendants, but he was going to have many nations, different groups of people. And this is the culmination of that. With the birth of Jesus, God saved the world. It was no longer just to the Israelites. It's now to Jews and Gentiles alike. And that's very important for us as New Testament Christians. I think the vast majority of us would be considered Gentiles. So this is a wonderful, wonderfully important passage for us to take into account as we look at the wise men, these magi, who are Gentiles, the first Gentiles to come and worship Jesus. So please, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. We will re read verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with, his, with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift of, of your word, of Scripture. I pray that you would open our ears and soften our hearts now so that we may receive the message you have for us. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. It seems to be there is, there is a popular movement among the media right now is to, do, to do movies about biblical events. We've had Noah. Recently we've had the Exodus. You know, and it's interesting... This situation here would probably make a really good movie. 
There's a lot of stuff going on here. You have King Herod, who throughout history is, is shown that just as he gets older, he gets a little more crazy, a little more neurotic, and he's very bloodthirsty. And all of a sudden, there is this baby who's being declared to be king of the Jews. And Herod, king of the Jews, is going, uh-oh. And so he starts doing these wild things, and he, he pulls aside these wise men and, and has all these, these twisted plans to go get the baby and then to bring the baby back under the guise of worshiping, but really he wants to kill him. And then we have these mystical wise men who have come from, from a land afar. We don't really know who they are. We've got this mystical star that guides these wise men. There's a lot of exciting things happening here. There's also a lot of mystery about this, right? There's, they, you, you could see a director taking a lot of license with what's going on here because there's a lot of confusion. We wonder how old was Jesus at this point? You know, a lot of time, in, in our mangers, we include the wise men, but the wise men probably weren't there at the manger. This probably happened a while later. And it says they entered a house, so Jesus was probably not in the manger. And the, and the, the, the area, the amount of, of space that they had to travel was literally thousand miles. This took months. So Jesus was probably maybe even a toddler at this point. Um, and we start to think, who were these wise men? A lot of the texts called them, refer to them as magi. And I think that's a good translation of what's going on. They, they probably weren't kings. They were advisors to kings. Uh, magi was, was kind of like uh, the cabinet to the president. It's an advisor. They help him make decisions. Uh, just just for, for reference, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would be considered magis to the king. They advised. They gave information. They were well-educated. Uh, they're usually very wealthy because of their position, their status. They had a very high status, a lot of power. And then there's the other thing is how many were there? We're always pictured in our manger scenes as having three wise men. And that, it makes sense because there were three gifts that were given, but there's a lot of evidence to probably say that there were many, many more than that. Again, these, they traveled a very, very long way. They were very wealthy. They were very powerful. So they probably had servants and soldiers. This is probably a rather large gathering, which is made evident by the fact that their mere presence alerted King Herod. So this is a big enough group that, was, that, that showed up. Um, now, we don't need to make this as a, a reason to go out and start destroying all the wise men in our manger scenes. We don't need a new iconoclasty. We don't need to start doing this. I love that the wise men are in the manger. I love that they're there. Again, this is a wildly important time of history. This is the Gentiles. This is the world being brought into the manger, brought into the presence of God. So you don't, don't go destroying your manger scenes because of what I said. But there was probably lots of them. And then we get to this star. What was this star? We love thinking about this. I was doing some research and I found there's almost 500 books that have been written about what this star is or is not. And there's a lot of great theories out there. But nothing has been proven. So was it a comma? A comet? Was it a supernova? Was it a very specific aligning of planets? Unfortunately, I saw in a couple of, of Christian publications that said, well, it, it wasn't really a star. You shouldn't read it literally. It was just a guiding star that God put in the wise man's heart. This was some type of celestial body. It appeared to be a star. For all intents and purposes, it was a star. And it was ordained by God, and it moved, and it brought these wise men, these magi, to where it went. It's important. 
and it's good. So while there is a lot of mystery about this, there's also some very solid things that we do know about this. And I want to observe a couple of things about these magi, these, these advisors. I'm going to look at four things that we can observe from the magi. I'm going to look at the journey of the magi, the reaction of the magi, the gifts of the magi, and finally the invitation of the magi. Let's, learn, let's look some more about the trip, the journey that they had to take to get there. Again, this was a long trip. This probably took months, maybe a thousand miles. Okay, for those of you that have been fortunate enough to go on the senior high trip out to RYM, Colorado, and you have been on a bus from anywhere from 20 to 28 hours, you, that feels like a really long trip. And it is. You, you go to sleep and you're in Texas. You wake up in the morning, you're still in Texas. That is a long, long trip. That pales in comparison. Pales. This took months. These men had to take sabbaticals from their jobs. They had to put aside their families and leave them and go. Travel with a massive amount of resources to be able to last that long. And it's strange that they would want to be doing this. They're Gentiles. These are not people who have grown up reading the Torah. These are not people that have grown up going to the temple. It's strange that they would go to such lengths to travel to meet this king of the Jews. But they knew something. They knew something was special about this baby. He wasn't merely just a baby. He had something that they needed so desperately that they are willing to risk their money, their safety, their time, and travel and go look at Him. And I think this speaks a lot into our human condition. We live a life and, and we feel a sense of, of, of being unsatisfied, of unhappy, of, of wanting more than what we have. I mean, this is built in this idea of happiness, it's built right into the, the foundwork of, of the United States of America. The Declaration of Independence believes, it says we have the inalienable rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And I think it's interesting, it doesn't say we have the right to happiness, but the pursuit of happiness. We get that we are not happy on our own. We get that we have to try to be happy. We have to go do things to be happy. We need things. We need people. We understand that there's a longing inside of us. And it does not come naturally. Satisfaction does not come naturally. So I got this idea, and I started to look at what are the ways that we try to fill this gap, this longing, this need. And so I did a Google search, always dangerous, of what makes people happy. Well, several things stuck out to me as I did this. There was uh, several different... First of all, it was millions of hits. Just millions. But there's, there was a post that I kept seeing consistently. It says, psychologists have finally figured it out. Psychologists have finally figured out what ma makes people happy. There's one from 2001, 2004, 2007, 2009, and each one was different. <laughs> and they just kept saying, no, we figured it out now. No, we figured it out now. And each one was different. So I went through and I started reading some of them. A lot of the things were very similar. You know, you need to surround yourself with people who love you, people whom you love, family. That was a very common theme, and I'm going to come back to that. 
But then it just starts going wild. Uh, one, one cracked me up in just the specific the order of it. It says, do not be a slave to money. Do not work too much. Work when you want to. And then the next point right after that was, travel the world. I would love to have a life where I could choose not to work and fund a worldwide travel. Then there's another one, and there's a lot of this type of thing where one very specifically it says, the key to happiness is you need to imagine your most golden self. And I've read through the description of what it means to imagine your most golden self, and I still don't know what it meant. We're confused. This world is confused about what is keeping us from being happy, from being satisfied, from joy. We're very confused. And we do these wild, crazy things in the pursuit of happiness. We have the answer. Scripture tells us very clearly what is making us unhappy, what is leaving us unsatisfied, and it's sin. Scripture tells us that what keeps us from being happy is sin because that sin has severed us from the relationship with our Heavenly Father. We're orphans. Sin has severed us from the relationship of our Father. Again, we, we kind of get this deep down inside. One of the, the, the common theme through all that, those lists of how to be happy was relationships. Relationships with your family, with people you love. We have a longing for relationship. We were created for relationship. God created Adam in the Garden of Eden and it was good, but He said it's not good for man to be alone. We were created to be in a relationship, so He created Eve. But most importantly, we were created to be in a relationship with God. And we get this idea of being an orphan. Several people have talked about this. And it's very popular. But look at who a lot of our superheroes are or our stars of, of common movies and themes recently. Think about Batman. Batman is, a, is an orphan. Harry Potter, a very famous orphan. Katniss Everdeen doesn't have a father and her mother is just completely absent. Mentally, she's an orphan. We get this idea. We're orphans. We're not satisfied. We're missing something. And Jesus knows that. In John chapter 4, we hear of a relatively famous account of Jesus talking with the woman at the well. Okay, Jesus goes out in the middle of the day and he comes up to this woman who is trying to draw water from the well. And we learn from this account that she is kind of an ostracized woman. She is an outsider. And the reason is, is because she had been trying to fill the gap in her life by relationship with men. She felt that, that need for relationship. She felt that need for love. And she was trying to find it in humans, in men. And Jesus talks with her and he very lovingly confronts her on this. And then he says, if you knew who I was you would be asking me for living water. He calls himself the living water. And this is a beautiful illustration of this need we have and the answer being in Jesus. I think that illustration can, can kind of pass us over and we don't quite understand what Jesus is saying there to the full depth of it. During that time, they lived in a desert. They didn't have indoor plumbing. Getting water was a really difficult thing to do. If there was a well nearby, you had to go early in the morning before it got too hot, and you had to carry 
as much water as you needed back on their head, on their shoulders. Our bodies are made up of 70% of water. Water is a very important part of our lives. We do not live in a desert. And I think the vast majority of us, and myself included, have never really known what it's like to thirst. To go for days in dry, hot air and not be able to drink water. Dehydration is excruciating. It is so incredibly painful. And it was a normal part of their life when Jesus came to them. And you can imagine, just if, if you are that thirsty, if you have lost, the, the, starting to lose the water in your bodies, your organs start shutting down, the only thing you can think about is water. You want nothing else but water. And then when you get that water, how sweet it must be. How soothing. It saves your life. That is longing. We long for relationship with Jesus just like that. And Jesus tells us that. He says, I am the living water. And we see that these Gentiles, these men from afar who did not grow up learning the Torah, who did not growing up going to church, they get it. And they need the same thing that we do. A lot of times when we look at people in the world or even people in our own state, in our own city, our society has become so relativistic. You know, life is what you make of it. Happiness is what you make of it. Salvation is what you make of it. We start to think, well, different things for different people. We all need whatever, you know. But we all need the same thing. Going out and evangelizing and talking to people can be an intimidating thing because we don't know how we'll be received. We don't know if people will agree with what we say. But we have the answer because we all need the same thing. And it's Jesus Christ. It is this baby born in a manger in Bethlehem. That's what we need. These magi, these wise men, they got it. They get it. They were willing to travel for months to get there. We all need the same thing, and it's Jesus. And then they get there. They get there. They get all the way there, and they finally, the star stops above. And they look, and they're overjoyed. And they walk in, and they see the child. Again, in our manger scenes, where are the wise men in the scene? Standing off to the side, very regally looking over the child, Right? That's not what they did. What did they do? They saw the child. They walked in. They saw the child. They were so overjoyed. They were so touched with emotion that they fell to the ground. They fell to the ground. They did not bow their head. They did not kneel. They fell to the ground. I thought about actually throwing myself to the ground as an illustration, but that's not dignified. I'm not going to do that. But then I started to think, I have a two-year-old son. And his favorite thing in the world to do is to throw himself to the ground. He treats his body with reckless abandon that I'm kind of jealous of, actually. But so many times I see this, I'll see Bear will just come running, and then he'll just slam his head into the ground, and I'm just waiting for the tears. And then he starts laughing. He loves it. That's a very childlike thing to do, Right? I'm wearing a suit. I'm not going to throw myself on the ground. I'm an adult. 
Okay, I've learned a long time ago that it's not good for me to fling my body onto things. I break things when I do that. I'll break a couch or I'll break my bones if I hit the ground. But it's not a dignified thing to do. It's a childlike thing to do. To, to throw your body to the ground. And remember, these magi were very dignified people. Very dignified. They were highly authoritative. They, they had authority in their kingdom just under the king. These were, pe- these were men that other people bowed to. Yet they saw this child and they had no other reaction but to throw themselves to the ground. Their joy was so great. Their wait was over. The answer is here. The living water had come to quench their eternal thirst. They could do nothing more than fall to the ground and worship Him. They did not rely on their high social status or their career success or their education to make them worthy to be in the presence of this child. Again, highly dignified people. You could expect them to walk into these common people's home and expect to be received as royalty. But they didn't. They fell to the ground and worshipped their superior. A child. And then I love even the versification of this. In the same verse that they fall down and worship, they then give gifts. Their worship is not just this internal experience. They don't just keep it to themselves. They share. Their worship, their joy has led them to worship. Their worship has led them to give gifts. It says they pulled out gifts from their treasure. The, the things that they had carried with them to pay for the things that they needed to survive, they started giving it to them. Our joy will lead to worship, and our worship will lead to an overflowing of that joy. It's the thing about joy, you can't contain it. True joy, is, it, it, it overflows. When we begin to be filled with the living water, it's going to spill over into the lives of the people around us. So we see the reaction of the Magi show us who this Jesus is, who this child is. Then we get to the gifts, right? We get to the gifts that uh, they are given, the the very famous gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now there there are some scholars that have praised the Magi for their theological knowledge in giving these gifts. They said, you know, they, they knew exactly what they were doing. And they were declaring that this child to be the God and the King and, and, and part of the Trinity. But I think we probably have given the, the Magi a little bit too much credit if that were to be the case. Again, they were Gentiles. They may have known who this child was, but they didn't understand the full scope of it. However, these gifts are important. These gifts that were given were important because they are written down. And everything in Scripture is important and is written for a purpose. And so we need to pay attention to that. We can learn from that. So let's look at these gifts. What do these gifts mean? What can they teach us about Jesus? Well, first was gold. Gold is very valuable. It still is today, right? But gold was especially a kingly metal. It's what palaces were filled with. It was what... Kings controlled, the kings controlled the gold of the kingdom. To have gold or to be given gold was a sign of royalty, of of being a king. 
we are reminded again that this baby laying in a manger is king. Though he came as a baby, he's still king. He came with the authority of the ultimate king, which makes his, his, his desire to come even greater. That he had that authority, yet he was willing to come as a crying infant. Jesus is king. And then we have frankincense, or as many kids like to say, Frankenstein. Gold, Frankenstein, and myrrh. Frankincense. It simply just means, the word just means pure incense. It's incense. It's very, very expensive, very, very pure incense. And what did they use incense for? Well, it's something you burn, and it gives off a scent. Uh, and if you look at the usages of incense and, uh, and frankincense in the Old Testament, it is almost every single time tied to some kind of sacrifice being made to God. Frankincense was, was expensive, and it was bought went to be used giving sacrifices to God, to appease God, to these, these sacrifices. This is a reminder to us that though Jesus was the King, though He came as a, a baby and had mortal flesh, he was an immortal God. He was the immortal God. He was not just human or just God. He was fully human and fully God. And then we come to myrrh. And here's where it starts to get dark. Myrrh was something that was most often turned into a perfume. And it was very, very expensive. It was very hard to harvest and collect. And so it was very expensive. But most often it was turned into perfume. Uh, one of the scholars I read about, he said, just, you know, a, a regular sized bottle of perfume of myrrh would probably be the approximate cost of about $10,000 today. Very, very um, expensive. And it's, it's interesting. Even, we see God's providence working in everything. Mary and Joseph were, were very, very poor. And we see right after this passage that Herod orders all children under the age of two to be killed. These gifts that the Magi give them probably funded their escape, probably gave them a way out to run an escape and, and save the life of Jesus. God is using everything. A little side note, sorry. Myrrh, often made into perfume. And it was used a couple of different ways, but its primary use was to prepare a dead body for burial. It was to cover up the scent of a rotting body. Now, I really, really don't think the Magi had this in mind when they gave it to Mary and Joseph. They would be the worst gift givers in the world if that's what they had in mind. But this tells us something. God sent His Son Jesus to be a human with the sole intent dying. Jesus took on mortal flesh so that He could die in the place of our mortal flesh. It's important that as we celebrate Christmas that we keep in mind Easter. We cannot separate the two. Jesus came as a helpless baby to live an obedient servant life and then die. And be raised. 
This is all connected. We have to understand this. Though the gift of joy and hope and salvation is free to us, it came at a great cost for Jesus. It came at a very great cost. Though he had the authority of a king, he put aside his divine right. And he came into this world as a fragile infant in order to live, die, and be resurrected so that we may receive the greatest gift ever given. Life. Our relationship with our Heavenly Father restored. And the promise of eternal paradise in the presence of our Father. The greatest gift ever given came through the the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This brings me to the last point. This, this, the invitation of the Magi. Let's go back and look again a little bit about who these Magi were. One of the things that Magi did was they were astrologers. They would look to the stars. They would look to the patterns of the stars, the movement of the stars, and they would make predictions off of that. They would predict future events, they would um, look for answers to specific questions. And they would make predictions off of the patterns that they saw in the stars. Now, Jeremiah gives us, the prophet Jeremiah gave uh, Israelites at that time caution. He said, don't put a lot of weight into their predictions. Those are predictions made by men. They will be proven not to be true. And they give you no life. There is no redeeming value of that. But that's what these men did. These men looked to the stars. And how did God invite them into the presence of His Son? With a star. God chose to introduce His Son to the Gentile world through a group of stargazers. Stars had significance for these men. So God descended to the Magi's level to communicate with them. Stars got their attention, so God used a star. What does this tell us? We do not have a God that stands off at a distance. God does not stand off at a distance and say, do the best you can. God doesn't even drop a trail of breadcrumbs and say, you've got to follow it. God came to us. This is a beautiful, this is the reason of, or, or how He came to us. He sent His Son. He came to be us. But not only that, He comes to us in the stage of life that we need Him. If you are sitting here today and you think this gift can't possibly be for me, I don't talk correctly, I don't act correctly, I'm just not the kind of person that Jesus saves. That's the type of, per- that's the type of person Jesus did come to save. The broken. The sinful. Jesus comes to us in our broken state. We do not have a God that sits off afar. He comes to us to be with us. Let us ever be presently minded of that. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this day. I thank You that You sent Your Son Jesus to live the perfect life, die a horrible death, and then be resurrected. Lord, I pray that You would make this very, very real in our hearts. That You would help us to, to, to worship You. To be joyful to take into account 
the blessing we have, the joy we have. Lord, I pray that we would understand that Jesus is the living water. That the thirst we have can only be quenched in Jesus. Let us not chase things of this world, things of men, but let us chase the love of Jesus. Let us seek to be quenched with the living water. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.